Drew McGee and his daughter constitute the greatest threat that's ever confronted this nation. Suppose lighting fires is merely the tip of the iceberg. Suppose we have a child here who someday is capable of creating a nuclear explosion simply by the power of her will. I suppose there is a little girl out there somewhere today, this morning, who has within her the power someday to crack the very planet in two like a china plate in a shooting gallery. Welcome to Now Playing's Firestarter Retrospective Series. Burn it all down, baby. Burn it all down. Part of the Now Playing Stephen King movie series. Is this experiment being done by the shop? Hosted by Arnie. I'm scientifically rational enough not to form a complete opinion based on two experiments. Stuart. Excitable man. And Jacob. I used to be like everyone else. Now I see everything. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of the series. And keep coming back as we continue looking at all the Stephen King-based movies. It does matter. Everything matters. It's all connected. These podcasts will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You have got to control this thing because it's a bad thing. You understand me? A bad thing. Listener discretion is advised. Now look, I'm going to say two words to you, and you're going to tell me everything you know about those words. Charlene McGee. Today we're discussing Firestarter, starring Zac Efron, Ryan Kira Armstrong, Sidney Lemon, Kurtwood Smith, John Beasley, with Michael Gray Eyes and Gloria Rubin, directed by Keith Thomas. How you feeling? Hot, hot, hot. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. And Stuart. And this is the co-host who's worse than weird, Jacob. And welcome back to Stephen King. You know, I thought we'd be getting a lot of the classic era King after it became such a phenomenon. But, I, you know, what? We had a Pet Cemetery remake. There hasn't been as many as I expected. I guess they're still coming. Yeah, there's a lot on the way. You're dooming us or damning us, as the case may be, because they're making them. Every rights holder to whom King signed indefinite rights over is grabbing at their properties Lest one Pet Cemetery remake not be good, they're going to go ahead and do a prequel <laughs> instead. <laughs> oh, I love it. Like, let's just keep it going on the mediocrity. What's been successful since it? Not Dark Tower, not Pet Cemetery. I'm assuming not Firestarter. Dr. Sleep did okay. You know what? Uh, Salem's Lot is my favorite Stephen King novel, so I am really looking forward to that reboot. But let's just talk about it. Firestarter. Yeah, it was written during the era where everyone was reading Stephen King. I don't remember anyone ever saying this was their favorite. Like, I always felt like this was a pale imitation of what King had already done in Carrie. It just, it didn't work as a book. I strongly disagree. Believe it or not, you will be able to hear my book review coming soon to the newly christened now playing book reviews books and nachos is no more but i can't say that it's my favorite book but i like the book i think king wrote it with a good sense of urgency it clips along at a good pace i think it interweaves present and past really well it takes till the second half to really get going when the flashbacks end but i like the book and while 
this and Gary both have young girls with supernatural powers, I have to think the feel of the book is so much different that I just throw them all into characters that King writes that have The Shining in some way or another. I think the way I would parse it out is this. Carrie, at the end of the day, is still a horror novel. She's scary. Her rage will get you. And even though we have empathy for her, we get some graphic prom night stuff that makes her sort of a monster. You know, irredeemable. And here, I don't ever really get a bead on Charlie and Book in the Drew Barrymore movie. It always felt more like about the shop. It always felt like King had more to say about the CIA and all their LSD experiments. And he really didn't have a good read on who this fire starter was. So if they're going to remake it, that is my hope coming to this film, is that we get a movie about the fire starter and not the shop. Oh, you're going to get that. I hope you really like Ryan Kira Armstrong. When you make the first Firestarter, you have Drew Barrymore, right off the success of E.T. You put her on the poster, it means something. Here, it looks like the exact same poster. When I watched this, I did watch it at home with my wife and a friend of ours, and I called it up, and on our TV, my friend was like, are we watching the original again? He literally thought this was... Drew Barrymore on this poster. Yeah, when I went to go show my wife and girls the trailer for this on YouTube, the thumbnails for the trailer of the original and the trailer for this looked almost exactly the same. Yeah, I don't think that there is a real effort here to change the 80s-ness of the original. It seems to be that that's trendy. You know, like it got by a lot on that 80s nostalgia too. I mean, they avoid the 80s in that they hired a Native American to play a Native American in this version. <laughs> True that. I mean, this isn't an 80s period piece. It would be better if it were, but there's going to be cell phones. They're going to talk about internet and things like that. So it's not a period piece, and yet it's really trying to play on that 80s nostalgia. The color tones. That all those browns. I mean, like, maybe it's not set in the 80s, but someone tell the interior <laughs> decorator, because it is 80s brown all over. But this is coming from Blumhouse, if you look at who produced it, you will notice a De Laurentiis is in there. Dino's heirs now have the rights to these films. So they apparently sold it to a number of companies. There are so many opening titles at the beginning of this movie, but the notable one there is Blumhouse. Threw together $12 million to put this together. Does this mean we can look forward to a remake of Maximum Overdrive from Blumhouse or Cat's Eye or any of the other De Laurentiis films? If they can make it for a few million and make four times their money on it, yes, we will get that. Yeah, I think we're in jeopardy of them making anything Stephen King wrote between Carrie and It. Anything after, I don't feel like has the same nostalgia. I don't think people care about the new books the way that they cared about that first decade of writing. Would they remake Misery? Misery is a big one. Uh, what could you do different? I guess that would be the question to ask. They put it on Broadway. So, I mean, yes, they'll bring it back in some way. Misery is a uh, slightly beyond that period I'm talking about. But by and large, if you're talking about 90s, 2000 King, you're talking about something that doesn't have the same cachet or name recognition as even something like this, which again, I'd argue Firestarter is no one's favorite Stephen King novel. I hear you're saying that you have some 
I haven't gone back to read it, and I'm not going to, but I remember the book being a real slog with no ending. It does just grind to a halt, but it's an easy read, and one of the reasons why King is who he is is that he was able to churn out these things so effortlessly, even if they're not wholly original. What's interesting is when I turn this on, my girls don't know who Stephen King is. My wife's a big King fan. I'm not. Like, my hope for this movie, I'm like, oh, John Carpenter's doing the score? Maybe it's going to be good. But it was interesting seeing my girls' reaction to that Blumhouse production logo because they know that, and, like, they got excited about that. They're like, oh, this might actually be scary and good because it's we recognize that Blumhouse stuff, and they like some of their films. Admittedly, Blumhouse usually does have some level of quality control. I don't associate them with utter shit. Yeah, believe me, if you put (laughs) out $3 million horror films, you have other shit on your resume. But yeah, they have some real hits to crow about. They've become something in the last 15 years. And I agree, they're probably the biggest name here. Like, honestly, when you look at who's involved, Blumhouse is the biggest. John Carpenter is the second. I want to put it out there. He's only doing the score here. But he was on the docket to make the film originally. Back in the 80s, Mm -hmm. he had a script and he was ready to go and it was only because the thing failed Mm -hmm. that they didn't make that version. I wonder how he feels about scoring some other man's (laughs) version of a work he never got to make, but worked on. He likes money. He got paid. Yeah, sure. Why would you want a John Carpenter score for a non-John Carpenter film is my question. I get wanting it for the Halloweens, but why would you want it here? I'm telling you, when I got the the email from the record label that puts out all his stuff, they're like, look, the Firestarter LP with John Carpenter. I'm like, oh, John Carpenter's involved with this? To me, that gives it some credibility. Just even if it's not his film, the fact Mm -hmm. that he was involved doing the score and that's kind of what he does now is just music. That got me hopeful for this. And you know what? People aren't always that savvy. You see John Carpenter on a poster and all that, and you think, oh, John Carpenter made Firestarter. Let's watch it. He certainly has a lot more name recognition than Keith Thomas. (laughs) Do either of you know this director? Nope. (laughs) I looked him up. He apparently hasn't done much. Yeah. I went and found his first film called The Vigil. His only other film. Not just his first, his only other film. right. (laughs) Yes, it feels like a Blumhouse film, even though it isn't. It's like a one-man show. It's a Jewish exorcist, is the best I can compare it to. It's about this ex-Hasidic Jew who is guilted into taking a job as a shomer. And, you know, just cultural awareness, I had no idea what this is. But a shomer is a Jew who sits vigil over a dead body for the first night so that it can ward off evil spirits. And as you can imagine, this man has lots of visions and things come at him as he's sitting next to a corpse for five hours in the middle of the night. Like, it had style. I liked the lead performer. It was interesting to see all the Jewish rites and all of that. But it just couldn't sustain the runtime. It would have been a pretty good 30-minute short. But at 90 minutes, I was ready for it to be over. But I can see why you'd hire the guy for a horror movie. He had something on display in the vigil that you'd want to bring in to a horror work. And, you know, one of the writers I saw, Halloween Kills. Like, Stuart, you got to be excited. Yeah, Scott Teams mostly is known for writing the show Rectify, which was a critically acclaimed drama from a few years back. He subbed in on Halloween Kills. I think he's part of the Blum House. He's working on their new Exorcist film. So I think the way it works is kind of like Ethan Hawke. If you do one of our films, we're going to keep you around. We're going to call you in. You're going to be part of the team. So this does feel like 
a Blumhouse, even though it's got a little bit more money, it looks like they partnered with the Universal. This does feel like one of the smaller, we only got five people in this cast, we're going to keep the budget under $10 million and see what it happens. Zac Efron, I guess, is the other big name here. And poor guy. I always feel like he is trying to find his redemption picture. When you start out in Disney Channel, you really got to prove yourself in adult <laughs> life. You know, you spend the rest of your life trying to say, I'm not cheesy. Here's the thing. I know who Zac Efron is. If you tell me in his movie, I could tell you, oh, he plays Andy. But if you didn't tell me this was Zac Efron, if I missed that in the credits, I would have just gone, oh, it's just some dude. That is who Zac Efron is to me. I guess I'd never watched high school musicals i missed out mm, yeah you totally a whole generation watched <laughs> and adored that and knows him from that but it's been a long slog since then hey i will stand by the first neighbors films pretty funny dirty grandpa not so bad mike and dave need wedding dates is a guilty pleasure of mine that's where I know this guy from is his post-Disney work. I've never seen a high school musical. Yeah, no, I agree. If he has found or retained fame, it's by playing the douche, right? Like, I continue to play that cheesy, the Baywatch, they cast him as the Hasselhoff character in the Baywatch reboot. I get that that's what he means because he starred in a cheesy Disney musical in the early 2000s. But he has tried to go legit, and I've seen a couple of those. He was... Very mediocre as Ted Bundy in a forgettable Netflix movie. I saw that one, yeah. Nicole Kidman pissed on him after he got stung by a jellyfish in The Paperboy. <laughs> really weird film. Tried to be a coming-of-age thing. It just, like I said, I keep feeling it. I know that pain of, like, I want to be legitimate. I want to be Justin Timberlake. I want people to forget about my cheesy Disney past and respect me. Maybe this is the film that's going to do it. I certainly didn't think he was old enough to be a middle-aged dad, but I guess that's how time works. Here he is in his mid-30s playing the father of Charlie. Oh, don't hold this up. Don't even pretend. This isn't going to be the movie. This isn't anybody's movie. This isn't going to make anybody. This premiered at the same time on fucking Peacock as it did in theaters. This is no one's salvation. Nobody is going to be putting this atop their resume. This is barely going to theaters. I don't even know why they bothered putting it in theaters and on Peacock at the same time. Did either one of you see this in theaters? Because it's on Peacock. I'm staying home to watch it. Yeah, I signed <laughs> up for a month of Peacock because that's cheaper than a movie ticket. Cheaper than a ticket, yep. Well, it's not to me. I have the AMC Pass, so I can go see any movie for, you know, the same cost, three a week. So I did both. I decided I wanted to first see it on the big screen, see if there was a crowd, see what their reaction might be. So I went Thursday night to the opening, and there was a crowd, and there was a reaction. Define crowd! A crowd of what, like three people? Eh, I would say about 20 15, 20. That's actually shocking that 15 to 20 people showed up in the theater for this. And then I rewatched it again with mom on Peacock the next day. I was like, I wanted to refine my notes. And I was like, yeah, it's always best to get the mom perspective. She didn't know the original. She's like, that's something Stephen King, isn't it? Which to her <laughs> means that's horror I don't like. I'm right there with her. I know I watched that film and I talked about it with you guys. I have no memory of that except didn't Drew Barrymore get like an Atari 2600 or an Intellivision? A ColecoVision. <laughs> ColecoVision. That's, that's all I remember. You remember that detail. That's so funny. Throw in some 80 toys and I will remember. I did go back and rewatch that. Yeah, I rewatched it this week for comparison. That is also streaming on Peacock. So you could do a side-by-side -side comparison if you choose. And I did uh, as well.
But yeah, do you really think this is going to make a ripple at the box office or anything else when it's coming out on Peacock? This is not going to dethrone Multiverse of Madness in its second week. Uh, this feels like the new normal. This feels like what most movies are probably going to do. The ones that get that aren't made directly for Netflix, you know, like they might get this piddly little theatrical, but by and large... They will be found, if they're found at all, on a streaming platform. And, you know, Peacock is just easy to kick around. We all know that NBC doesn't have the library to be doing this, but they still (laughs) insist they can remain in the game. I mean, they have the office. That is it. Yeah. But, you know, that shouldn't count on quality. Like, obviously, this was made with the thought of just being a good movie. Let's evaluate it on that. (laughs) Wait a sec. You say it shouldn't count on quality, but you're also on record saying that movies that come out on streaming feel lesser. And I came into this with low expectations. Halloween Kills was my favorite movie of last year, and it had the same release. You stand so alone on that island. (laughs) It's fine. I don't need anyone to be with me. It will be underrated. I have, without a doubt, I am sure in five years, people will go back to that Halloween movie and go, oh, it's better than than I gave it credit. And maybe they'll do it after the new one comes out. But we're not here to talk about Halloween ends. We're here to talk about Firestarter ends. Arnie, (laughs) give him the plot. Burnt ends? Yeah, the franchise is over after the first one. Is that what you're saying? I think there could be a sequel, but I'm not sure there will be. Is there a demand? (laughs) As college students, Andy McGee, played by Zac Efron, and his wife Vicky, played by Sidney Lemon, volunteered to be injected with an experimental formula. After this test, they both had psychic powers. She was a telekinetic, and he was able to psychically control the minds of others. When the two had a daughter named Charlie, played by Ryan Kira Armstrong, the agency that ran the experiments, the DSI, also known as The Shop, sent agents to capture the girl for study. Andy used his psychic powers to kill the agents, and the family has lived on the run ever since. It turned out baby Charlie had both her parents' powers, as well as the ability to start fires with her mind. When she loses control of the power in school, it alerts DSI Captain Hollister, played by Gloria Rubin. She hires bounty hunter John Rainbird, played by Michael Greyeyes, to capture the girl. Rainbird was also a subject in these experiments and has his own psychic powers. Rainbird kills Charlie's mother. Andy and Charlie go on the run, but Rainbird tracks them and captures Andy. Charlie sets out to rescue her father from the DSI stronghold. When she gets there, though, her father uses his psychic powers to make Charlie burn the place to the ground, killing Andy, Hollister, and dozens of DSI agents in the process. After her pyromaniac rampage, Charlie comes face-to-face with Rainbird, who saved her from capture at the last moment. She and Rainbird walk off together as credits roll. And as they start, the major shift, the big difference you're going to find between the two fire starters, aside from the era that they were made in, is the fact that this is the one that wants to focus on the family unit. And we get from the first scene a much bigger part for Vicky. Yeah, was Vicky in the original? Heather Locklear. Yeah, I doubt you would even remember that Heather Locklear, Dynasty star, like, she had an oven mitt that caught fire. That was her one big scene. They also, like, laid in bed doing hallucinogens together during the study, during one of those flashbacks. But, yes, the first movie was told identically to the Stephen King novel. You pick up in the middle with the father and daughter on the run, and then through flashbacks, you find out why they're on the run. Here, we're going to go pretty much chronologically, but you got to have a hook, right? You got to get something to catch people's attention. 
You gotta have a baby doll with the head that <laughs> catches fire. It got my attention. I'm like, yes, okay, maybe this film's gonna be okay. But we see Andy wake up. So obviously this is Dream. He's gonna reference Dreams later when he goes out to the kitchen and, and sees Charlie. But like, is this actually how they found out their baby had fire powers? Because that would be amazing. <laughs> I don't think she set her own face on fire, but... I don't think it would hurt her. Yeah, I'm not sure how that works, but I love the fact that she's so hot, they got a fire extinguisher by her framed photo. <laughs> like, even that <laughs> shit might catch flame. We got, like, this shot here as the family is making pancakes late night, just nearby having that safety precaution. Yeah, because when they jump ahead, what, what, she's 11 years old at this point, like, they know she has fire powers. They're having conversations about something changing with her bad thing. Yeah, so looking at the original, it was about the 60s, right? We do know that the CIA conducted secret drug tests with LSD. They wanted to know what that was. They wanted to know how dangerous hippies were, and they might have done some bad things. I even read a book where they are really behind the Manson murders, that all of that was just a LSD experiment gone wrong. So that is a conspiracy that King could tap into in the early 80s that feels relevant. But when you say that it's 2008, I don't think of the government doing these things. I think of private enterprise being the real threat. It's kind of weird that they're keeping the shop notion that it's all this government plot. Are they? Like, the shop is barely in this. I don't know who DSI is. I assumed it was some private company, but it is so ill-defined in this film. Like, I have no idea why any of this stuff, all these experiments were being done except to, to make this story happen. Yeah, Stephen King is guilty of a lot of 60s paranoia and anti-government hysteria. It worked very well for him in The Stand. Not so well with The Shop in Firestarter. That just feels like 60s paranoia coming through. But here, they've downplayed that to such a degree that I'm not even sure if the agency is called DSI or if Gloria Rubin's title is DSI of the shop. They're going to drop reference to the shop early on. They say the shop like one time. <laughs> they do, yeah. And DSI, I heard it in the original Drew Barrymore one. It's Department of Scientific Intelligence, which again, sounds nebulous. And it's the X-Files. It's where we do black ops stuff and you're not supposed to know. Obviously, this opening is just a way of shorthanding how people got their powers, but it's worth pointing out, when we see college-age Andy and Vicky, they've already experienced psychic phenomenon. They already have the shining, right? This medicine that they're going to get just amplifies it. Was this a thing in the original film? I don't remember the dad having powers, but they're already psychic or could do things like Vicky won't answer the question when she's asked about her psychic experiences. But yeah, they already have powers. I didn't remember if that was a thing or not in that original film. It wasn't. And it's not in the original book here. They're adding that in where is that why these two had a reaction is because they had slight psychic abilities to begin with. They're not going to focus on anybody else they're not even going to mention anybody else that was part of these experiments. We're focusing on these two. Well, we do see there's like day glow lab of beds and we do see someone plucked out their eyes or something at some point. So it does seem like everyone else failed the test. But these two, not only did they succeed in surviving the drug trials, but they were able to have a baby and now they're on the run. It's kind of Freudian. The way that I take it is that all the powers are deeply rooted with the parents. Like Charlie is who she is because of their parents, 
but the drugs have amplified it and caused it to be a global problem. You call it Freudian. This feels like it's got lower aspirations than that. Like this feels like a TV pilot. I'm not going to know what these experiments are about, really. I'm not going to know about the DSI or the shop. Like this feels like, oh, yeah, we'll we'll fill all this in in the coming episodes this season. Like, I, I don't know why you wouldn't explore all this stuff. It's so minimalist. Yeah, not only a TV pilot, specifically that Carrie TV pilot we reviewed that was a miniseries intending to spawn a full series after, that kept going through my mind again and again. But I would think for TV, you'd actually spell some of this out to then answer later instead of glossing over as much as they do here. This feels like we're just getting through this opening experiments as quickly as possible during opening credits. We're not even going to show a lot of experimental stuff. We're just going to show grainy music video footage and these two parents talking into a camera. Which is fine for your opening titles, but at some point in the film, you got to explore it and explain it and get into it, but they never do. Agreed. This obviously was made with the idea that this is going to be some kind of trilogy. I also just want to point out, it's not really clear in the book either. And that book is long. And it because it has this weird focus, at one hand, it says, what's interesting about our story is that we have an 11-year-old girl with these powers, but we don't really get into her story. We spend most of the time with the shop people testing her. And so... Again, which do you care about? I think we're supposed to be afraid of the little girl, but she just never became a scary figure in that book. I don't think you're supposed to be afraid of her. I think she's supposed to be the hero. She's supposed to be your X-Men. That's the thing I kept going back to with her was X-Men. Yeah, but this movie is telling me the whole time she's Dark Phoenix. Like, something bad is going to happen. She can't control her powers. She's losing control. Like, there's going to be a whole debate, which I think the first act is interesting because Vicky and Andy, like, they have two different approaches for how to deal with this. And, and I thought that was interesting. Ultimately, it doesn't go anywhere like most of the things in this film. But, yeah, do we try to just tell her to push it down or... Or do we try to teach her how to use that and control it? I don't know. Like, you feel like he should be the one advocating the teaching of it because he's actually using his powers for money-making scheme. But he's not teaching people, right? He's just, like, rewriting their minds. We see him at a a no-smoking clinic, and he just does some psychic thing, and the woman doesn't want to smoke anymore. She doesn't have any tools in her pocket in case she gets tempted. It is just, like, Professor X mind-wiping you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Only Professor X doesn't bleed from the eyes after. They have to (laughs) up it. It can't just be a nosebleed anymore. I'm going to bleed from the eyes. Which is effective. I mean, I think that is a powerful image that makes it stand out. It it does make this scene, uh, which again, starts out, I like the way that it begins with her just feeling like, you know, I think, oh, he's going to con her out of her money. But he does seem to, yeah, do something. They use sound effects and musical cues to show that as he's looking in her eyes, every eyeball twitch is like, things are cracking inside. You know, like you can hear things snapping in the interior of her mind. I hope she's better off. She leaves smiling, (laughs) but who knows? He's bleeding from the eyes. I think he's cracking his neck. I think that's like the audio cue that he's using his powers as he turns his head and like pops his neck joints. I don't think we're hearing her mind breaking. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, that's his definite move. Yeah, he does that throughout the movie. It makes me laugh every time that he does like he's about to do a wrestling or lift a couch or something, but he's going to crack his neck uh, right before the strain of it. 
It's a good introduction to the idea that he pushes. The what I do is I push, and I want my daughter to push down her power. I'm not going to use my power on her. It feels invasive for him to think that he would do to her what he makes people pay $100 a session for. A, that's cheap for guaranteed cure, and B, the difference is I think these people are asking for it. He's not changing their mind in ways they don't want. They are coming here saying, make me not smoke. He can do that versus manipulating his daughter's mind without her consent or her even being old enough to give informed consent. Yeah, but it makes me suspicious about him. Like, he doesn't seem totally benevolent. Like, Vicky, I I believe she's good. Andy, yeah, that he's willing to rewrite people's minds. Yeah, sure, you, you want to stop smoking? Okay, I don't know. That seems like a little invasive, though. That seems extreme. Unless they consent, they know they're going to rewrite their neurons and everything. But to me, this opening is telling me, Andy, we got to be suspicious with them. Whereas Vicky's more trustworthy. See, and but that's weird because Vicky's the one saying we need to train her, and yet she's out of practice. She doesn't use her powers seemingly at all. In fact, I'm not sure what she does. I think she's a stay-at-home mom and does not, you know, when she gets attacked later in throws a vase psychically she misses because she doesn't train her power and so she can't push like her husband she seems to be a little bit jealous of that and wants him to use that power to train the daughter i think that they should have flipped those motivations he should be the ones advocating for training and mom should be the one saying push it down because i don't use my power Yeah, they've never really explored the mother well in any of the adaptations of Firestarter, and here they give her more than she's been given before, because usually by the time we start the story, the mother is dead. They try to give her more here, but I agree it's a bit confusing, but by the same token, if your daughter is setting things ablaze around the house every time she throws a minor temper tantrum, yes, No matter what side of the use your power, don't use your power you come in on, she needs to be taught control so that she doesn't accidentally burn down the whole house. And yet it's the language, right? I mean, if you're pushing your feelings down, if you're essentially becoming emotionally blunted, I agree with Jacob. It's an interesting dynamic that's sort of playing out okay. We do see that Charlie is enrolled in school and fighting back anger. And because she's 11 years old, maybe she's on the edge of puberty. It's getting harder and harder harder for her to contain the bad thing. They step away from the puberty thing. I think they don't want to tie it too close to Carrie because at one point the dad asked the mom, she's not in puberty, is she? And the mom's like, no, not at all. So they intentionally pull back from that. They, I, But isn't that calling it out? That, didn't that make you instantly think of Carrie menstruating in the shower? Yes. And I got to say, like, when she's like, I don't have the Google, my girls were ready to bully her, too. (laughs) Like, like the fact that Google, like, I don't know, maybe she meant a Chromebook. Like, Google's not a thing you own. Yeah, I mean, we all know what she meant. And clumsily, she's trying to say, I'm the weird kid that doesn't have access to the thing that all the other kids have. You know, she has a, a ginger lab partner at the frog dissection that starts ridiculing her, calling her Amish. And I kind of like the visual that she has the heat waft whenever she's getting mad we get that distortion like there's a flame just out of camera lens and it's causing everything to ripple just like when you're looking through a fire at something yeah it was an effect they're going to use again and again because i don't think they can afford a lot of fire (laughs) it's a very cheap adobe after effect i guess you guys didn't like it no i thought it was effective but they keep going back to it over and over and over yeah they use it a lot and 
Honestly, this movie looks bad when it comes to its effects. So the fact that they use this one so much tells me that they're doing it in order to not do something more expensive. And I do think, though, the teacher needed to step in. This girl is bullied ruthlessly in this school, especially by the ginger. And if you're being made fun of by the ginger, you know you got it bad in the food chain. What A, teachers don't always get involved. <laughs> They're overworked. They can't care about everyone. And B, she does step in. She follows the girl after dodgeball into the bathroom, touches the stall. It's hot to the touch. All the sinks are running. And this is where she thinks she sees Charlie set off an explosion. But of course, it's just her rage. This was in the trailer making me think this movie would be so different. Because I'm <laughs> like, are we even going to have the shop or are we just going to have a girl in high school blowing things up? I had no idea where it was going to go. But yeah, it's going to hew closer to the book than the trailers made it seem with just this one scene in school. And I guess the shop is thermal imaging everything all the time they just got drones going everywhere looking for heat i mean there are satellites all over the place you can do this go to google earth you can see you know your street yeah but this is like right over the school like right at the moment it's happening it feels like they even know where charlie is why do i have to call 911 when there's a brush fire <laughs> if there's these satellites that could just alert the firemen before it gets out of control but the scene in the bathroom, it's also our first hint that she just doesn't have pyro powers. And this is something, again, I don't remember that old movie, didn't read the book, but we see those faucets turn off on their own. I'm like, oh, so she's going to have like her parents' powers too. I guess they're setting that up. Yeah, I think she has both. She both has Zac Efron's pushing and mental distortions, and she has the telekinetic abilities. I think what we saw very briefly in that videotape footage from the lab experiment was that Vicky was making papers fly around, that she does have the ability to move things with her mind. And so both of those skills are now coming together in a lethal combo, which again, I think Arnie, you've cited the biggest problem I have with Firestarter conceptually. They want us to only look at this little girl as a hero, as a X-Men, as someone to say, how dare they try and rein her in? She is woman, hear her roar. And I think that it's important to retain the notion that what the shop is trying to do is probably on some level correct. Like the fact that this power is loose, it's like a rogue nuclear missile going around. Do you really want that in your school? Do you want to go into a building knowing that you could be vaporized? Yeah, that's the weird dilemma with this film is I, I feel like I'm supposed to be rooting for Charlie. She is the title character. She is the fire starter. And yet, like, I'm with Kurtwood Smith. Like, yeah, kill her. She could turn into a nuke. Totally. I think you want to strike that balance. This movie, even in the first scene, when that mobile catches fire above the crib, it's the universe, right? It's the whole solar system burning down. They're telling you her potential right there in the crib. And I think that's something done in the book and the first movie as well. You get in all instances the very 80s fear she could launch a nuclear missile with her mind or create a nuclear explosion with her mind. But I think the way King plays it is that's more about what the government is doing. Again, like The Stand. The Stand has created in a lab this thing that could kill the whole universe. And we're lucky that it's Charlie who has this power and not 
somebody evil because Charlie is good throughout that entire book. From the very beginning, Charlie is good. And in the book, she does have her parents' powers. But I think in that first movie, it focused mostly on her fire, even though she did somehow steal quarters from a machine on her own. So there is some telekinesis in there. It would just be more interesting. I think we can all agree it's more interesting when something cute also seems threatening. And like the idea that on one hand, I am rooting for this little girl because she's a little girl and she needs to be protected. And so I want them to go on the run and escape this awful organization. And yet I recognize the potential that the government is trying to avert and recognize that their correct assessment yeah, except the, her victims, like that teacher, Mrs. Gardner, and then her mom, like, it's hard for me to root for her when, and especially when the character she's going to be with the rest of the film, her dad is like, yeah, just repress it, just repress it, don't try to do anything to control these powers, like, she is very dangerous, she's got a bad parental figure, she's hurting very innocent people, like, it's weird that this is how they framed her, because I'm never on her side in this film. I think that's okay. Again, I what I like about this version more than the book or the previous movie, it's the one that plays the loosest with the moral ambiguity of of Charlie. It's okay if you look at her as someone that should be put down. I guess if the shop was better defined and it basically comes down to a scene with Kurtwood Smith, like what's going on, but I needed to know like where people stood. Like, is the shop just trying to save innocent people from her? Are they the evil ones? Cause they did these experiments and they want to dissect her. Is she ET? Like then that would get me to go be on her side. And you mentioned Kurtwood Smith a couple times. And I mean, I love Kurtwood Smith and Robocop and he's a good mean dad on that 70s show and when i saw he was in this i was hoping he was going to be the evil person at the head of the shop you know i thought he might be the michael sheen character we get only one scene of kurtwood smith here acting crazy in some kind of institution locked up i thought it was a motel six it just looks like a rundown motel room veterans hospital they they wish they were in a motel six (laughs) it looked like he was playing with pixie sticks those little sugar candy things pouring them out in front of him i think what we are to understand watching this This is not a complete story. I've always felt that about the book. It was going to be developed. TNT was going to make a show called The Shop about a decade ago, and it never came together. This definitely feels like the filmmakers are saying first part of a trilogy. Kirkwood Smith is here so that he can be the big bad in Firestarter 2. Okay, that makes sense. Instead, what we get is Gloria Rubin, who... I dare say is best known for being the doctor who had AIDS on ER. Oh, I never watched ER. I I knew her as the psychiatrist in Mr. Robot. That's my only go-to for her. That's why I had such a hard time believing she was evil in this one, because she was like always trying to help the protagonist in that one. I like the fact it's a simple choice, but the subtext that runs through Firestarter is feminism. And I like the fact that they've created a foil that is a powerful, professional woman. You know, like it's woman against woman, determined woman against woman. I think it gets framed with later. I like the way that Gloria plays it. She's the new guard. She's not like the old white men that used to run the shop. You might even believe that she's going to take a nurturing attitude to Charlie should she capture her. Maybe I'm thinking this because Gloria Rubin is a woman of color, but you know who I kept wishing had this role was 
I kept wishing this was Viola Davis, somebody who really seemed tough and seemed dangerous and seemed like they had a killer instinct as compared to Gloria Rubin, who did not feel dangerous. Viola Davis's salary is more than the cost of this entire film. She's won an Oscar. There's no way they could <laughs> afford her. This is through and through a Blumhouse movie, and it is populated by people that they could get. And I would just go ahead and put it out there. It feels like it is the budget of a TV pilot. It is small in that way. And so, yes, it would be great to have star power here. That's what I hear you saying. We're not going to get that. But I do like her take on Hollister. In the original movie, I don't know if you remember this, I was like, no, Martin Sheen's only in the dead zone. But Martin Sheen came back to do another Stephen King. Yeah, I mentioned him already. He's not good in that movie. Like, he was so great in Dead Zone and such a non-factor in the Drew Barrymore movie. Well, he was brought in at the last minute. Yeah, for whatever reason, he's just not good as a major villain. And so you forget he's in the film, it becomes all about George C. Scott. Yeah, Gloria Rubin is just not going to feel dangerous. Fortunately, she has a henchman who does feel somewhat dangerous. They're going to completely rewrite what the Rainbird character is. It is not George C. Scott. <laughs> it's not a white man. Yeah, it's Rainbird. They've kept that factor, but they wanted, obviously, in this day and age, you cast ethnically correctly they've created an extra layer of sympathy because he is the first victims of dsi he before they experimented on blonde co-eds they experimented on native americans and i think that subtext helps you see the complexity of him as a villain i thought they were trying to tell us that he was experimented on does he have powers i don't yeah i mean he, he has the powers of shooting a rifle real well and hitting a target Oh, no, he psychically, yeah, he definitely psychically brings Charlie to the facility at the end. That's right, yeah. And when he comes for Vicky, he can read her mind. He can look into her eyes. Again, they use that sound effect. They do things where they put lights to create pinpoints in people's pupils, and it lets you know anytime you're seeing that, that that's the power. Yeah, he definitely was a victim. And uh, again, I think that makes him more interesting in lots of ways than George C. Scott. Yeah, they. he even says to the wife, before they used it on co-eds, they tested on lab rats. So he's got a chip on his shoulder yeah. as to the fact that I'm guessing, based on previous stories, that he was military and those were the lab rats that they could use before they could use co-eds. No, Native Americans. Let's look at the history of the indigenous people of America and see how they've been treated. I think it's all right there. Yeah, go to any reservation and see the state of things. Uh, you get how disposable those people are treated. So you're thinking this is more the smallpox blankets and less the military thing. I can see that. Yeah. Except he's such a good sharpshooter. I still was writing in my own mind that he had military experience. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. That's his real power. And blasting the Knights of Ebb, which I appreciated. This soundtrack, I just want to put it out there. Much has been made about the fact that it's got John Carpenter and they're working in 80s bands and what have you. It really doesn't sound all that different from the Tangerine Dream soundtrack from 1984. And indeed, that might be the point. We want something that feels synthy and 80s. My mom kept saying, this sounds like Halloween. I'm like, Mel, there's a reason, Mom. <laughs> yeah, it felt out of place. I think the Carpenter score doesn't work when it's not a Carpenter movie. There's just something about the two that go hand in hand. Carpenter could do so great with a little bit of money. And here, 
we're seeing somebody who isn't doing nearly as well with more money than Carpenter had for most of his films. Yeah, when I found out he was doing the score, I went and checked out a couple of songs online. I'm like, wow, this is really good. And then I'm watching this movie and I'm like, where's the score? I don't know. Maybe the mix is just different when you got folly work and the dialogue going on, but it just didn't stand out to me as much as the rock music. (laughs) The problem is, and it's always been a problem for me with this story, it's it's hard to know what to root for. Like, it's hard to know where to be invested. Music helps heighten the emotion, but if it's ambivalence, okay. What do you want to happen? I can say, in all honesty, this is the movie where I cared the most about the McGee family. I wanted them to get away from this killer Indian that bust in here. I knew the wife wasn't going to make it out of this scene, but I had a little bit of empathy that Charlie was going to lose her mom in this moment after burning her herself. I can't say I did. I don't like either of these parents. I'll just throw it out there. Everybody in this movie, except Kurtwood Smith, is a bad actor. They are flat. They are uninteresting. When Vicky gets it, I'm like, good. Get her out of here. I don't like Sidney Lemon. I don't like this character of Vicky that she has created. Zac Efron. Can Zac Efron phone it in if so he is otherwise this is as good as he gets and i see why he's never gone on to any successes without singing but this is a poorly acted film where i'm wishing for david keith i really am i you're not i am it's a tv acted film to me like it feels on that level and i'll say for this first act up until charlie and andy go on the run like i'm kind of into it i'm intrigued by it and want to see where they're going with it and then i i'm gonna find out they're gonna go nowhere so yeah i hear the negativity i share some of the sentiment in the end i guess it was much more clear when i was in a movie theater how small this movie is how it doesn't deserve to be projected on a big screen. How appropriate that you can stream it on Peacock the same day that it's arrived in theaters. But as far as the acting being bad, I like that. I like the choice that everything has been made flat. <laughs> I like the idea that we're not going to make a hyperbolic, cartoonish comic book version of this. It would be easy to do that. This practically feels like an X-Men movie. They're going to try to make this seem as natural as possible by giving flat, naturalistic acting. And I think, by and large, that choice for me helps make it smaller, but helps it make it more real. And again, the family unit feels more believable because of it. Well, we're going to find out right before the mother's found dead that when Charlie set the mother's arms on fire, she meant to set the father's arms on fire. So... This is the tension, is she hates the father, loves the mother. Really? That's the tension? Yeah. Mm, not enough of it. Yeah, I, I took it as she was mad at her dad, but she her mom got in the way, but I didn't feel like that was going to be tension throughout the rest. I think the arc of this movie is, I love my mom, I hate my dad, my mom is dead, I hate my dad, oh, I'm going to go save my dad, I love my dad. I don't see enough of it. You might be right that it's there, but too flat. On that that end. All, what I get is that this family mostly cares about each other, and they would have all gotten away had Rainbird not slipped into the house, taken out Mom, and realizes at this moment, it's interesting, that he is ill-equipped to deal with what he's been assigned to bring in. That he's so spooked by his encounter with Charlie. The wife has a pivotal line that comes back a couple times, that when you see her, you'll understand and regret. 
And we see him immediately after this fight, like run to the shower and tremble and know that he's outmatched. He can't fight Charlie. He could probably take down Zach Efron, who couldn't, but this little girl, no way. And Rainbird doesn't even have to bleed from his eyes when he uses his power. We're it's in the book, and I think it was influencing my reading of this movie, that the dad is losing his power, that he just can't use it anymore. Oh, no, it's clear in this movie that he's dying, that like doubling over in pain. By the end of it, they'll say if he pushes one more time, it'll create a brain bleed that'll kill him. Yeah, but Gloria Rubin's saying it. I didn't know if she was telling the truth. Well, again, you don't, because again, it's everything's poker-faced. But to me, that played is real. I think where the movie gets in trouble, like up to this point, I'm feeling like this is a solid way to get us into a very familiar story. I think we get lost a little bit on the road trip. Like all of a sudden they're abandoning their truck and like they're on the road. Like she's playing with alley cats and comically bad effect has to like burn it. And yeah, the cat scene is really bad. And I don't know how you immolate two-thirds of a cat and that cat's still alive it had no guts it had no heart (laughs) but it was still mewling so she had to kill it the rest of the way Mm -hmm. and a great way to turn off your audience who might own cats and love them is by having your hero like have to murder (laughs) a cat like that's what my girls are like yeah we're done with this we don't need this (laughs) but again i want to remind you don't call her a hero that is the problem is that I think what's sticky, What if there's anything interesting about Charlie at all, is that we want to protect her because of the way she looks, but truthfully, it's like cuddling a nuclear bomb, and you don't want to do it. Yeah, I get that. That's what they want to go for. I wish it executed on that better. I f- wish I felt that ambiguity more of like, how am I supposed to react to this girl? Because I'm mostly just like, yeah, she's dangerous. Let's kill her. It needs to be more Sissy Spacek than they ever go with Charlie. But they eventually meet the kindly farmer, I guess, Irv the Drunk, coming from somewhere and agrees to drive him to Boston for $100, which these days wouldn't pay for gas. He doesn't agree. He is pushed to do it for a dollar by Andy. Like, again, these are our heroes. And if they were hitting this tone right, like, I could go with it. But instead, I'm just like, these are all just, like, awful people manipulating others. Well, what are they going to do, Jacob? You got to cut them a break. If the government's coming to kill you, if you con people out of $99 to get away, so be it. I mean, you're protecting your daughter. You're supposed to be on Zac Efron's side because he's doing everything he can to make sure the shop doesn't claim his daughter and cage her for the rest of her life. I was more sympathetic when he was doing it to a cabbie than he is to this kindly old man, but I'm fine with him giving that push But then they're not going to go to Boston. They're going to go to this guy's house. That's what's so weird. Uh, Whose idea is it that they end up on the chicken farm? I don't get it. Yeah, Irv is like, hey, you want to come have some sandwiches on our way to Boston? Like, push a little harder, Zach. We don't need sandwich picnic trips during this. We got to get away. I thought for sure the wife was going to be like, "Uh, he gave you a single. Yeah. What are you talking, $100? But we're going to find the wife there is catatonic brain damage from a car accident. Yeah. And this feels like a dead zone move and all that. Little Charlie can hear this reverberation voice go through the window and find the wife and get the real story. It is Irv's fault. He is a drunk. This is all, you know, because he was behind the wheel when he shouldn't have been. And it killed their son as well. If you're designing a TV series, this is a good episode. This would be what you would have the whole 60-minute episode be about. I feel like I did watch a couple Hulk episodes that were about this. Oh, God. I I would not want to watch this as a TV series if this is the episode, but... 
I mean, she's got to go and save a different person every episode here. Yeah, she's going to psychically talk to the wife and she forgives you. Like, I saw that coming. I'm sorry, but I, this woman is so Terry Shivode that the way you'd save her is by having Rainbird put a bullet through her brain. I, I was wondering if there was going to be a mercy killing thing, like she's going to have to set her on fire. <laughs> uh, yeah, they don't go there. But I, again, there's some funny character bits here when, you know, I like Irv's reaction when he finds out that Andy has been acting as a life coach. And he's like, you mean like Tony Robbins? world going to hell like there's charm here i hear the grumpiness of you guys this movie is not great i'm just gonna go ahead and put it out there Firestarter has never been great but this isn't as bad as you're making it no irv got one laugh out of me like when he's watching the news and and he's like you can't believe that you're telling me i can't trust the tv yeah I mean, that felt a little out of place where, like, are we commenting on One American News Network now? What are we doing? But I'm going to just stand staunchly against you, Stuart, and say this is the worst Firestarter has ever been. You're acting like Firestarter has always been a piece of shit and that this one smells better than other pieces of shit. I'm going to tell you that I like that book. I think that first movie isn't so bad, and this is god-awful. So for you to sit there and lie to the listeners and say that it's just not good... You're the one lying. Rekindled is one of the worst Stephen King projects ever made. So this is not the worst Firestarter. Let's not forget there was a TV movie sequel. Okay, you're right. You're right. Rekindled is as bad as it gets poor Malcolm McDowell. But Correct. this is the worst adaptation of Firestarter as compared to some weird, unnecessary spin-off sequel. I get that you're not liking the muted tone. And it is like literally in color scheme and grandiosity of effects and performances and always this feels small. Whereas the eighties one, they were going for big fire effects and extravaganza. You hear they're doing some kind of weird CGI around the actress since they can't do the fire. Again, another After Effects plug-in to make it look like yellow lines are coming off of her. All the fire that's happening off-screen, and then we cut to something smoldering because they just can't afford the pyrotechnics. I wanted to turn this off at the one-hour mark. I hit pause. I'm like, how much more is there? And the 30 minutes that remained was interminable. Yeah, there's nothing worse than the fireball effects in this. And then I did go watch some clips of the original and I'm like, oh, maybe they're just doing an homage to the awful fireball effects in that original. Yeah, I mean, the the hair dryer in her hair effects was, <laughs> it's always silly. This whole premise is silly. I don't know where you're getting that Firestarter is this great work. It's never been. And I rank it as among his worst books. A, you haven't read most of his recent stuff. True. I've only read up to the current and yeah current to where we're at covering the early 90s and you didn't read the stuff that wasn't movies right yeah but by and large when we look at the quote-unquote classic era this is among his most least impressive works it feels like let me do carry again and try and bring in my paranoia about the cia Middle of the Road, I liked it better than Salem's Lot, which you already stated was your favorite. Better than Salem's Lot. Now, that that is an outrageous opinion. That is truly provocative. You can listen to my books and nachos on Salem's Lot as to why I didn't like that one. I didn't think that his writing skill was honed. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, we'll move on. We agree that we don't agree on Stephen King, and we agree we're not agreeing on this movie, because I think this is fine. I don't think it is theatrical. 
That is the experience I'm having. I could feel in my audience, you know, they would titter and not at the bad special effects. They would kind of giggle because they could recognize, ooh, this is a moment where she's about to blow her top. You could feel them like building up to like, I want to cheer when the sheriff shows up and she's going to turn it into a flambe. And when it doesn't really happen, it's funny how loud the disappointment felt. Everyone was just kind of like, oh. That was it, huh? Yeah, and it's at this point, I'm not sure if Rainbird is working for the shop or not. Like, he's going to come and just shoot all these cops that are there to arrest Andy and Charlie because Irv got drunk and called them. Yeah, that's a mess for the shop to clean up. I guess that's why they lock him up after this. Oh, yeah, they're furious. You can see that Captain Hollister, I mean, she says that. I hired you because you were supposed to be discreet. This is not discretion that I have to clean up five dead cops. And he totally could have killed both of them, except his order was bring them in alive. Bring Charlie in alive. I don't know that he could have killed Charlie. Again, his reaction to that first standoff is that I'm not even going to try to go there. She's too powerful. But when Charlie is running in the distance away from him, he could have pulled up that sniper rifle and gotten a headshot in, or even probably a leg shot. He's a very good sniper. But Andy did some push on him. Like, you're supposed to think he didn't do it, and he's watching Charlie run away, then it, like, fades, and she's actually gone. Like, he was actually to get one up on him. But then he hits Andy in the face with a gun, and he sees Charlie again. Well, yeah, because the push effect ended when he got hit. And one of the things that's missing, I think, from all versions, maybe it's in the 84 one, but in the book, it was pretty clear that the Native American mysticism, there was a reverence. Charlie was seen as some kind of folklore coming of a god. And so the reason why you wouldn't have Rainbird do it is because his Native Americanness won't let him. He respects her too much. I think here they tried to downplay that because it might be culturally a little bit overblown. Yeah, what I missed was the murderous love Rainbird had for Charlie. What makes the book and that first movie so good is the double play when Rainbird is pretending to be her friend, and yet he's the most lethal one of all, and how he's planning to kill her, break her nose, have the bone go into the skull, and kill her through brain damage. That danger and that relationship between Rainbird and Charlie is everything. And I was looking forward to seeing it here since this Rainbird seems like an even more dangerous version than we were getting from George C. Scott. But they're removing all of that here because they're wanting to turn Rainbird into an anti-hero, I guess? So in the book and the first movie, where all Rainbird wants is to be the one who has like a murder-suicide pact knowing Charlie will kill him as he kills her... I'm waiting for this movie to go there, and it goes the opposite direction, and that is, it robs Firestarter of its best hook. And I get it, it is missing here, and I also get that it's missing 30 minutes from that boring-ass 1984 movie, (laughs) and this is why I feel like this version is better. It's just getting to the end quicker, because they know they don't have an ending. They don't have a conclusion that's worth anything. So let's just get to whatever it is. What they do have, though, which just blew my mind, is like DSI agents are going to show up and put in like they have magic contacts. So you can't do mind powers on them. I don't think those are going to stop fire from burning them. But they've invented contact lenses. So you can't read your mind. You can't do the push on them. It's only good for Zac Efron fans. You know, like (laughs) he can't push you around. But yes, it won't help against the fire starter. But she has escaped. 
And I think it's hilarious. Two vans full of SWAT teams, they see her running into some trees and they don't even bother to give chase. We're not <laughs> like, no way we could catch that 11-year-old. Well, and this is where you, you say your theater felt like this was too small to actually be in a theater. Like this montage of her trying to, I guess, control her powers, like learn how to use them, which goes on for maybe a minute like she set some sticks on fire three fires yeah three fires is all they could afford for an entire <laughs> montage and two of them are right next to each other two of them take place on the, with the same pile of sticks yes and she boils some water too <laughs> yeah she boils a swamp i'm worried about like the fish the frogs in there like she's just killing animals all over the place i was worried about her drinking that water for bacteria i'm glad she boiled it first agreed agreed <laughs> And it's a real carry moment when she has to confront the bullies on the bike. I'm thinking again, like this is where you show that she's brutal and, and evil and she just takes their sandwich and their bike. And one of their pants, there's a third one and like she looks at him and then it pulls away and it shows all three boys and he's missing his pants. So I guess she wanted to wear some clean jeans. <laughs> She never showered or bathed that I could tell. They're making fun of her for being dirty. It's not even the same bullies because they're way far away. So wherever she goes, she just invites bullying. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Uh, there are some people that just get picked on. They just, they are who they are. And she seems to have that aura of like, we're going to mess with you. If you walk in our neighborhood, we're just going to stop what we're doing and heckle you. But this is also weird, though. It's not just firepower. She's just not a fire starter. She's going to do the push on those boys and so like now she's feeling even more dangerous because she has all of her parents powers too yeah and so it was mentioned while they were staying over in the farm that dad has a psychic link with her and maybe the reason why rainbird let her go as he figured he could play into that that they could ultimately use that to lure her back to the facility dad said that when they had you as an infant i actually was able to find the unmarked car that you were in and make the agents kill each other i thought that was kind of a cool death making someone forget how to breathe yeah i've seen preacher i know how the word works look we've all seen thousands of movies better than this but i'm playing the game of this is going okay i'm hearing that you guys want more yeah i want more you're telling me even though i'm watching this on peacock you're telling me this is worthy of theaters i didn't say that i said the opposite of that no that's what the producers are oh, telling peacock, me like, yeah yes, yes yes the fact that it is in movie theaters as well yeah they're telling me it's more than just whatever peacock offers and i said like the first act i was like more or less into it i was going along with it it was that second act where it just really lost me and now we're gonna have a climax basically in a hallway like mm -hmm. wow talk about tv level production totally. like a hallway everything will take place while she stands still in a hallway mm -hmm. oof 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 this is the only thing that got me period was that she kills her dad and that her dad pushes her the whole thing the dad was saying to the mom is i'm not gonna push our daughter it's not right to do that I shouldn't use my powers on her. He's going to do it to turn her into a weapon. She is not even going to have the power of choice. It robs this character of agency, which is the only thing this character really needs to have in order to make this story good. All these characters have been robbed of something. This death of Hollister, I don't care. Like, maybe she was good. Maybe she really wanted to help her. I don't know. Like, her dad, again, the, the fact that he wanted her to just repress everything, I was never on board with him. So, okay, people are on fire, sure. As the lone voice of not a hater, I would say I think it's a really cool choice. This is the last of Zac Efron 
Saffron in this trilogy. Again, conceive of this as a larger story. This is the Obi-Wan Kenobi and the lesson that he leaves her with. She'll get agency down the road. They're not worried about that right now. The fact that they're harnessing Freudian rage on an electric complex in this moment used to kill the bad guy, the first bad guy, that seemed like a solid choice. The fact that this is all happening in what feels like a, the back of a warehouse, agreed, feels really small. If you look at the 84 movie, they got explosions galore. They got too many explosions. They got so much fire in that climax. It's actually hilarious how long the scene goes on. But I'm back on board. Like, I wish this was the movie. I, I wish we had more of like just cops turning to each other and shooting each other in the head and heads getting set on fire. And it's cool when these guys walk in with these like pyro suits made of silver so they can't burn. And she's got to, I thought she was just going to burn so hot. She was almost going to go nuclear to kill him. But mm-hmm. Ray Birch is going to walk in and shoot him. I thought the exact same thing. I thought she burned through those suits. If those suits exist, please give them to all firemen because apparently no fire, no matter how hot, can get through that suit. I, I'm enjoying this ending, but I would enjoy it more if she was doing it with emotion, you know? And maybe it's the actress or maybe it's the fact that she's being mind-controlled, but I would have liked to have seen her either enjoying it or vengefully doing it. I mean, she a couple of times had lines about how it feels good to use it. Right. I would have liked to have seen some of that here. I'm getting nothing out of this actress, including, again, the character isn't choosing to do this. She is at this point. The father's dead. He's not pushing her anymore. He's, he had one more push in him. Yeah, he he pushed her to burn him and Hollister. I think once a push is pushed, it's pushed because that woman isn't going to start smoking again now that the dad is dead we don't know that we don't she had to come in for three sessions so i don't think it takes after one but debatable you could have the reading that he has warped his child he was telling her in the middle of the movie don't kill people i regret killing those agents that was wrong and then he changed the philosophy at the end but i took it to mean only to destroy me get me out of your life get that influence out of your life and then go do what you want to do doesn't he say burn it to the ground Yeah. Okay, not just him then. Burn everything and everyone here. Well, yeah, burn the shop down. Like, I mean, we could all get the point of that. But is she going to keep going? I guess my point is, is she going to just keep walking to the city and take out the whole world to be developed in a later movie? That is the threat. Yes, the threat of a later movie. That is the threat. Yeah, I wish I felt some threat in this movie. Yeah, agreed. It's a very mediocre scene that ends on a shrug. Like, I knew I could watch the rest of it at home. So when the credits started rolling, I'm like, I'm out of here. But people were staying thinking that maybe there was going to be a stinger where we get the tease of something more. But it's pretty anticlimactic to have her walk out to the water and have the Indian carry her off like Frankenstein. Yeah, like, I thought she might kill him. He gets down on his knees in front of her. Well, of course. We all did. And he did shoot the old man. And I kind of thought this movie would end with her going back to the farm. That's how the book in the first movie did it. Yeah. Terrible ending. And so the fact that he possibly killed that farmer, he was left writhing. I don't know if he's dead or alive, but I thought for sure Rainbird was planning something or, you know, because I had the good Rainbird from the book in my mind and not this lame ass character. And so it's. Just this 
I couldn't even believe this ha- was how it ends as she takes him by the hand and the two walk off together. I was seeing flames. One, it's not any cheesier than the ending of her going back to live on the country farm with the people they terrorized in the middle of the movie. And B, it brings up the subtext that they're both vi- victims. Native Americans and women have both been brutalized and so that she can be. Again, it's proof that dad's imprint didn't last. She's not going to kill him. She's not going to burn him to the ground. Uh, it's all on her now. Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with the ending, the fact that they walk off into a sequel that we'll probably never get. To me, it, it says, you know, Rainbird's going to be her real parent figure that's going to train her how to use these powers. Which is interesting. I mean, again, what would that end up looking like? I imagine she will be a very different character if they were to ever make that movie. But do you want them to? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Firestarter 2022? Jacob. I said I sat down with my whole family. We all had different entry points into this for our excitement level. Blumhouse, King, John Carpenter. And by the end, I was the only one watching this. Like everyone else had left. I was struggling not to play Mario Kart Tour on my phone. I need to get those green coins, get those bonus items. But no, I had to keep putting my phone down. It was a struggle. Like, especially after the first act, that's when it just started losing me. The stuff with Irv and going on the road. And the fact that... Look, it doesn't need to be clear cut like black and white, but I need some kind of definition for who the shop slash DSI is. And I I felt like that was really my biggest problem is they're pushing all this action forward. And I just don't know what they stand for in this movie. It's not developed at all. If I'm supposed to wait till a second one, well, that's a bad idea. Look, A New Hope is a good film. I didn't need to wait for The Greatness of the Last Jedi for that film to pay off. Like a good film should be a good film regardless of the sequels that it may promise to come afterwards. So that's my issue here. Not not that it even feels like TV because I was watching it on my TV. Like, yeah, it's funny that they're just standing in a hallway at the end because I'm thinking of people like Stewart in a movie theater, like having to watch this. Like, that's not the format. Watch this on your smallest phone streaming. That's what it deserves. And again, I don't need the black and white. I need better definition for these characters. Like, how do I feel about Charlie not being able to control her power? Should I root for her or should I be like Kurtwood Smith and say, no, just kill her because that's how I'm feeling. I It just doesn't feel like a well-developed script to me that more than the acting issues or the or the smallest of the scenes to me it's just not a well-written film not well-written in different ways than Halloween Kills I haven't read the book so yeah maybe that's the problem it seems like if the book's that bad though there's a lot of room to improve this like I do like that both the parents had powers that that helped streamline things and make more sense why Charlie had these powers too but yeah you could skip this it's not the worst thing ever it's just not good like so not recommend Stewart. Yeah, and I would say it's about as good as it was going to be if you have no money and you want to be faithful to Stephen King, which is just another way of saying the source material is flawed. Arnie, you said I said shit. I didn't say shit. Flawed. It is half a book. It has incomplete, ill-defined characters. It has a lot of room to be improved upon. And some improvements have been made. It's certainly more streamlined. It's shorter than the book. It's shorter than the movie. They threw out all the things that I thought they should have that went nowhere. I'm hearing that's some of Arnie's favorite stuff. So debatable, I suppose. But there's no doubt about this. This is small in a way that doesn't fit within theatrical viewing. That audience I was with, they were up and down. I don't know if they were going to the bathroom or what, but just jittery. Like, just couldn't sit still and talking. And you could sense that they wanted to enjoy it. Like I said, whenever it was about to explode into flames on screen, you could hear the titters. You could hear the anticipation. And it is disappointment to see that it is such a small-scale production with so few in the cast, so little bloodlust in it 
its heart, so little carry fire that it really needed. And so, yeah, I think it's one of those things where you watch it at home. Mom was like, meh, whatever. What's for dinner? You know, it's, it's everything's fine. You're never going to think about it again. It is the very definition of mediocre. Nothing is good. But I guess I'm grading on the curve of where have we come from. To me, this is better than the 84 movie. They've made capital improvements. <laughs> you could say it's underwhelming, and yet I keep a running list, a ranking of all Stephen King projects, and this makes the top 20 easily. It's right there with App Pupil and Cat's Eye and the recent remake of The Stand with Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, all movies I don't like. Like, that's crazy that that's... This is like the video game retrospective. Like, you could be in the top 10. You're still shit, though. <laughs> I mean, you could take that position. I, my recommendation is that you go watch Brian De Palma's Carry, because that's the one that has real fire. But this one is a shruggable, non-offensive affair you could watch. Mild recommend. Two things you just said. First, direct quote, there's nothing good. Second, recommend. Yeah. Look, I'll be clear. If I only recommended movies I really liked on Now Playing, it would be a lot more Red Arrows than it is. I, I'll agree with you. There's nothing good here. Nothing at all. This is yet another in an installment of cheap-ass cash grabs trying to build off of Stephen King's name. Now that Stephen King's name doesn't mean a whole lot in theaters anymore beyond It Chapter 1. Nobody should watch this. It's not like it's the worst thing. It's not nuclear toxic radiation. And yet you are spewing toxic hate at it. Like you said. Nothing good. Not good special effects. Not good rewrites to the story. Nothing bad either. Bad acting. Bad special effects. Bad set design. That's where we disagree. Uh, nothing is good or bad in this movie to me. There is one shot in here so bad that I had to rewind the movie because I'm like, is that a miniature shot? Was Godzilla going to be storming a toy set? No, they used a digital camera with its settings so cranked that it made what I can only guess to be a backlot after dark look like a toy set. Like I expected a model HO train to go through there. It is a bad movie. And that makes you want to burn it to the ground that it had a model shot. I mean, again, like we've seen a whole lot worse in the Stephen King retrospective and now playing that you're fuming about this is weird. Here's the thing. We've seen worse like Sleepwalkers and Lawnmower Man. Right. And yet, because of how bad those were, there was some fun to be had with them in watching them in Brown Arrow kind of ways. Whereas this is a flaming red arrow because it's got nothing worth seeing. It's boring you and that's the biggest crime of all. No, it's bad acting is the biggest crime of all or perhaps the special effects are tied. But no, this is... Really bad, and all I hope, all I hope is that Stephen King has the ability to sue all these companies that hold the rights to his films. You know, there is that copyright law that is why we don't have any more Friday the 13th movies is because scripts that were written and original works that were not done for hire, the creators can wrest control back from the studios and take it away. And that's why the original writer of Friday the 13th now has control over elements there and why the heirs of Wes Craven now own Freddy again. And I only hope that Stephen King pays his lawyers 
to take away the rights from every De Laurentiis heir and every other company that made movies of his. You're acting like Stephen King doesn't want that money he made from selling all this. Agreed. Or that he has these jewels that have been corrupted. How about write a good book? How about that? Why don't you do that, Stephen King? Well, he could make a lot more money if he sold these things. He could sell the rights to Firestarter for more than the $12 they spent start to finish making this film. That's the thing, is he has money to be made and his name to protect. Money to be made by defending his reputation. Too late. Too late. Children of the Corn 11, okay? Too late. He could sue to make Children of the Corn 12 not happen. That's what I'm saying he needs to do. Please do that. I I am on board now. (laughs) If we don't have to review another Children of the Corn because he sues, I'm on board. We're calling lawyers here. Rather than review movies, we're just getting legal (laughs) movements to try it. Class action lawsuits. Yeah, that's where this movie put me. (laughs) I would rather watch that trial than watch this movie. (laughs) That's pretty funny. This is so far down in the Stephen King retrospective. It is a not recommend. That blows my mind. How how could it be this one of the worst? I mean, really think about... Mangler movies and Matt Trucks. I recommended Manglers. Firestarter 2. You're misleading people by making them believe it's this bad. And you're misleading people by making them think the book is that bad. I didn't say it was bad. I, in fact, I insisted many times it was mediocre. So the point is that this is not one of the worst of Stephen King by dozens and dozens of films. Like, you're, it's outrageous that you're damning it that far. I'll put it down there with Night Flyer. Which is about uh, 42 out of 74, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) You're not remembering. You've just forgotten where we've come from. No, I have not. And I just know I would rather rewatch Dolan's Cadillac than this. Mm, No, that's one of the worst. Again, mean what you say. I mean what I say, that at least Christian Slater brought something to the role as offensive as it was that nobody here brings to the table. But you know what? Stephen King is horror. I am scared because as recently as a week ago, Keith Thomas, our acclaimed director here, said that this has discussions to become a franchise. Well, duh. Sequel, prequel, TV series spinoff. They are looking at continuing this. I just have to think, though, that between lack of fan enthusiasm, the Stephen King groups I'm in are all retching at this. There's like one or two fans who appear to not be able to say they dislike anything that has King's name on it, but most people are revolting at this revolting movie, and... With a low score, and this won't make its money back theatrically, I believe. I don't know how you count Peacock dollars, but... I mean, there's going to be international sales. It will make its money. Yeah, you've already called out this was a very low-budget affair. It'll be easy to reclaim and make a tidy little profit. Well, I just hope this movie burns and its sequels are ashes that float away in the wind. Okay. Well, again, I'm not even that far apart from you in the sense of the ambivalence, but that you, the hate, I I don't get it. I don't get it. There's plenty to hate in the Stephen King retrospective, and this ain't it. But we are getting more Stephen King in the future. This September, that Salem's Lot 
remake is coming. Hopeful for that one. Paramount Plus is doing a prequel to the Pet Cemetery movie you forgot about from two years ago. And uh, we'll probably get to some of the newer ones too. Like the next one on the docket is one of the acclaimed ones. It was nominated for Best Picture, Green Mile. I've never seen it. Never seen it? I saw it in theaters. Yeah, I saw it once in theaters and I'm like, I don't know what I just witnessed. My sense is I will absolutely hate it, but you know... To be determined. My sense is you will absolutely hate it too, Stuart. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, again, I really don't like Shawshank Redemption and it looked like a cheap knockoff. That was the comparison everyone was giving it. It's not that. Put that out of your mind. It tries to be, though. It does try to be that type of a film, that uplifting kind of prison. The comparisons are apt, I feel. It feels more king to me. There's supernatural stuff in it. We'll see. We'll get to all of those in the fall. In the meantime, if you want to go to a different kind of prison, we can go to the Cuckoo's Nest this Friday. May patrons are going to hear a second review. We've already covered Under the Skin. Now we're covering Jack Nicholson's most famous movie, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the 1975 Best Picture winner as an encore. We went under the skin and now we go inside the mind with this film about a man who voluntarily goes into a psychiatric ward to get out of going to prison. It is a highly acclaimed film, one of my all-time faves that I'm looking forward to talking about, one of the films that really made me a fan of Jack Nicholson. Yeah, well, I definitely think that it made him the leading man of the 1970s, but my favorite is Chinatown, and we're going to cover that on the main feed next week. We're going to cover Chinatown and its sequel in the weeks ahead, just as sort of a way of continuing the Jack Nicholson love here at Now Playing. So if you'd like to hear the review of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, head to patreon.com forward slash now playing podcast or if you want to use podbean now playing patron.com and you can sign up for ten dollars a month you get over 65 bonus reviews immediately with at least one new one added every single month and it also helps support the show you're not just paying for those bonus reviews they are a thank you and you are helping us do the show we do every single Tuesday without fail, without missing a Tuesday since 2011. And thank you to everyone who supported our show. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Until next time, it's better for us to burn out than fade away. Did we get the audio? We got it. We did? My God! Holy Christ, I knew something was going to happen, but I had no idea. And we got it. We got it all on tape. And it's good enough to stand up in court right up in the goddamn Supreme Court. What are you looking so miserable about? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. I saw you die. No, you saw me burn. It's far more painful. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. He has no idea how interesting his life is about to become. And come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and dozens more in our archive section. Stop what you're doing and open your laptop. Also at our site, hear reviews of other films such as Maniac, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. You like Superman? 
I like that meant more. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Go now. I said you can go now. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. We don't have any more money. We don't have anything left to sell. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. Do you believe in destiny? No, sir. I believe in cash flow. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. We're ready when you are, Charlene. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. He's overdone it before and wound up in bed. He's doing something to his brain. Could kill him. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. I'm a little nervous about this. What if I go on a bad trip or something? The Firestarter films are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. You like having plausible deniability, don't you? Well, from a legal standpoint, yes. Then don't ask too many questions. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. You see, it's easy to tell a lie when you don't know what the truth is. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media Production, copyright 2022, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. You're all I've got, but I'm happy about that, because I'm crazy about you. Crazy about you too, Daddy.